1: brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for
0: the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Pip Williams, welcome to Better Reading. Oh, it's lovely to be here, Cheryl. Well, we, um, we are recording remotely um, and for us at Better Reading, this is a second actually. We recorded one the other day with the lovely Lauren Chater and this is our second remote recording because it is the year of coronavirus um, and it's strange times for all of us. Um, so a little bit about Pip. Pip was born in London. She grew up in Sydney and now calls the Adelaide Hills home. Lucky you! She is the co-author of the book *Time Bomb: Work, Rest, and Play* in Australia today. And in two thousand and seven, she wrote *One Italian Summer*, a memoir of her family's travels in search of a good life, which was published with a firm press to wide acclaim. Um, and I remember we, a lot of our readers will remember it, gorgeous cover and great story. It was also pub, uh, has published travel articles, book reviews, flat, flash fiction, and poetry. The Dictionary of Lost Words, which is what we're talking about today, combines her talent for historical research and simply beautiful storytelling. She has delved into the archives of the Oxford English Dictionary and found a tale of missing words and the lives of women lived between the lines. I mean, truly beautiful. Oh, thank you. Really, really beautiful story. Beautiful cover. Um, and for all of the, the all of you listening, you'll have to jump online and, and uh, or go to your local bookshop and buy the book because it really is beautiful. It's called. the Dictionary of Lost lost Words. Okay, so tell me, uh, firstly, Pip, um, because we haven't recorded a podcast before, tell me how you came to writing.
2: Well, I've been writing since I was uh, really little. I can't remember a time when I wasn't writing which is ironic really because um, I actually have dyslexia so I found reading and and putting words on the page actually a little bit more difficult than most Um, and yet words were the way I wanted and needed to express myself so from very young I was I was writing very messily in journals and and um you know, writing really bad poetry and, and um starting stories and never finishing them.
0: So Pip, tell me about dyslexia and you know, because I know that there are many writers that that are dyslexic and how that impacts your writing and reading. Well, dyslexia essentially
2: is a difficulty um, in processing language to some extent, so it's not an intellectual um, difficulty in any way. In fact, um, people with dyslexia tend to think in a way that can give them some advantages in in some situations, but... um, we do have trouble, and to varying degrees. So, my dyslexia isn't severe, but it was problematic, if you like, um, at certain times during my education. So, we do have problems with um, reading, decoding words, mm-hmm. um, and some people also have what's called dysgraphia, um, which, which is something I have, and also my son. It is hereditary, um, which is trouble um, reproducing symbols in a way, in in terms of writing. So it can make, you know, people with dyslexia tend to take longer to learn to read. They tend to be slower readers. If, if your dyslexia is quite severe, you'll avoid reading because it's difficult. I actually loved reading because I loved stories. So I think that was a huge benefit in terms of getting over the challenges of, of dyslexia. I just wanted to read the story. So So I, I I learnt to read. Um, Writing, you know, bad spelling is is really common and that's because we tend not to recognise that we're not spelling something correctly. So I can spell the same word ten different ways in, you know, in a few paragraphs and not really notice that, you know, any of them are particularly (laughs) incorrect.
0: Do audiobooks help?
2: Oh, yes, I love. I listen to audiobooks. I always have an audiobook on the go. Um, And But when I was... technologies to help so it really was you just had to kind of learn a way to to read and write the old-fashioned way now it's much easier because computers are incredibly useful for people with dyslexia and there's all sorts of programs that can read to you um, and that's wonderful but I also love reading you know physical books I read them all the time I just take my time uh, reading it, and one of the benefits is I read every word, so um, my comprehension of the book is is really good because I I cannot skim read, I can't speed read.
0: So, how did an adult like you then become a writer? I mean, I mean, a person like you become a writer. I mean, it's extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, it's a, it's difficult at the best of times. Yes, I, I think it's because um, so
2: dyslexia doesn't interfere with your ability to enjoy language um, particularly you know listening and and speaking and storytelling because you know it, since ancient times these things have been have been oral traditions not necessarily written traditions and so our you know my ability and my love of stories um, and my imagination and my desire to to make things up and write my own stories has always been there and because it's something I've always loved I've overcome any challenges as you do it doesn't you know if if you love sport you're not going to let asthma slow you down for instance and Mm. and it's the same with writing and telling stories I think
0: okay so tell me so you grew up where did you grow up in Sydney yeah, So, as, as you said, I was born in London, but
2: we moved, we were £10 POMs, so we were yes. the last the last of the £10 POMs, and we moved to Manly in um, 1972.
0: Wow. <laughs> when I was, what a contrast,
2: right? I know, <laughs> I know, when I was three years old. Um, and so, yes, I grew up in Manly and um, spent my whole life there until moving to the Adelaide Hills um, when my children were quite small.
0: So, tell me um, about your. Uh, Your time in Italy, just briefly, um, and we'll segue into your new book. It's heartbreaking, actually. Um, Mm
2: -hmm. I've been thinking about it so much lately because um, we had a wonderful, um, you know, four, four and a half months travelling around Italy working as willing workers on Mm -hmm. organic farms. It's a program known as Woofing. And we took the children out of school and and we travelled the length and breadth of Italy working on farms and helping people grow food and, and trying to learn how to do it because we moved to the Adelaide Hills and bought five acres and really were quite hopeless at keeping the chickens alive and bottling the fruit and, and all of that. And so we sort of went to Italy as a bit of work experience, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And it was an incredible time for our family, but also for me, because I think it crystallised what I really wanted to do with my life and it wasn't actually (laughs) the hard slog of farming. Um, But it was a very, very special time in our lives. and, And now I think about, in a way... I'm very nostalgic for that time because, you know, it's not something anyone can do right now. Mm. Um, and I feel so fortunate that we were able to do it and have such fond memories of the people and the places. And I'm, I'm devastated for them because Italy is really, is really suffering at, at this time with the terrible. virus.
0: Yeah, mm. terrible, really terrible. Pip, I think it's really interesting that you had that wonderful experience initially with your family and your children in particular and you know, in today's climate, um, uh, with coronavirus, and you know, planes halted, and borders closed, and you know, I was just reflecting this morning: Would are we ever going to have that experience again? Like, will airline companies come back into business? I don't know. What's your view on that? Um, I think
2: so. I, I yeah. there's a. I mean, it's so interesting. The word, the book that I've written that we'll talk about, is all about words, and so I've. I've been quite conscious of the words that we're using around um, the coronavirus. And one of those words is unprecedented. Mm. And, and it's made me think, well, is this unprecedented? And, and I actually don't think it is. We've had a lot of um, crises, international crises, including pandemics, viral pandemics, throughout history. Um, just in our the last century, we've had World War II, World War One, and the um, 1918-19 influenza epidemic, which killed up to 100 million people. We have done this before and... Um, The lifestyle that we were leading two months ago um, is testament to the fact that we will get over this, um, that we will hopefully learn some lessons from this. One of the things that I'm very hopeful for is that governments are now demonstrating that they well you know some would say that they're not reacting fast enough but in the general scheme of things they are reacting very quickly um, to this international crisis and I'm kind of hoping there are lessons there for the way they respond to climate change and that there are now no longer any excuses Mm. (laughs) for not responding um, because hopefully we will show that we're very resilient you know, in times of real crisis, and that we can come together and cooperate and collaborate, and we can change the way we live, in order to protect ourselves, our families, our communities, but the globe. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm actually a bit optimistic. We are going to suffer on the way there. There is no doubt about it. But we are a very resilient species, and and I think that we will come out of this. We will be back on planes, I suspect, and woofing around Italy.
0: <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. Um, do you think life as we know it is going to be different? Actually, I hope so uh, yes.
2: because I do hope that we will, um, we will reflect on the ways we adapted to this. Uh, we will reflect on, for, for many of us, some of the um, joys perhaps of spending more time with family and being finding ways of connecting with friends and people that we. Um, want to connect with you and I are doing it right now. Uh, I have. I'm actually not on social media, but I'm still finding ways of connecting to people across the globe at this time of crisis because there's a need to do that. And I have a feeling that some people will become closer because of this, even though they can't connect face to face.
0: You know, I think I think that's a valid point. Do you know what I've been thinking about? I've been thinking about families now that are forced to be together with their children yes. day in day out.
2: Right? <laughs> it could be. It could yeah. be some pros and cons. I have to admit. Yeah. Um, I think it's the people. A, yeah, it's a different way of living, right? <laughs> it is, um, and I think you know, it's it's easy for me to say that there will be lots of. I can see lots of benefits. I'm an introvert, and I'm I enjoy being alone, and and all of those sorts of things. But there are some people who will be truly. Truly, in dire circumstances right now, people in sort of you know domestic violence situations, people who rent or or don't have secure
0: housing, older people, older people alone and lonely. You exactly, know a lot of them, yeah.
2: Yeah, and so we're doing a lot of um, you know, we're making a real effort to contact those older people in our lives who we know are living alone across the globe as well, because I still have a lot of family in the UK. And I'm talking to them more than I ever have, <laughs> and I, you know, and, and hopefully that will set up relationships, you know, um, for when this is all over. But I hope that our communities also find a way of helping people who are much more vulnerable, mm. yeah, than my family.
3: Now,
0: tell me how you came to write the Dictionary of Lost Words, because it is so, um, it's eloquent, it's delicious in a way, it's oh. beautifully written, and a, just such such gorgeous storytelling. Tell me how you came to that. Oh, thank you, Cheryl. That's very kind. Um, well, basically, it
2: It came to me because I read a book by Simon Winchester called The uh, Surgeon of Crowthorne. I loved
0: loved that book. I loved it.
2: It's a lovely, very pithy, it's a very yes. small bit of non-fiction and mm-hmm. it's it's all about one of the people who volunteered uh, to collect words for the Oxford English Dictionary and this is back in the 1880s, 1890s. And the surgeon of Crowthorne was an American who was in London, shot someone, ended up in Broadmoor. He was genuinely mad um, but he was a very literary man. He was, gen- he was a surgeon. Um, he he fought in the uh, American Civil War and so he was damaged but what he did he spent his time uh, reading books in his vast library to find examples of how words had been used and then sending those in to um, James Murray who was the editor of the Oxford English Dictionary at the time um, and sending them in so that they could be used in the dictionary to give examples of how words are used. And this book, which was just fascinating in itself, I finished the book and I thought, yes, that that was such an interesting story. But it made me wonder, hang on a minute, everybody in this story of the dictionary is a male. They're Mm -hmm. all men. So Mm -hmm. I realised that the editors were all men The assistants and lexicographers were all men. Most of the volunteers who sent words in with quotations were men. Not all of them. There were quite a lot of women as well. But most importantly, the literature that they were referring to in order to define words was mostly written by men because we're talking pre-20th century mm-hmm. on the whole. Um, as as the dictionary went on, they started to collect words from the early 20th century, but most of that literature is written by men.
0: Mm. But if you think back even t- truly around that time, I mean, I think all publishing houses, as, as small as they were, were, the writers were men, the editors were men, the owners were men. I mean, that's what was happening. It's right. Really yeah, it's it's really done a, a full turnaround to today. Yes. Where it's oh. to completely women. But anyway. <laughs> yeah, completely. Except that. So so, what I was wondering,
2: and this was the one of the kernels uh, that started the book, is I simply um, wanted to ask the question that do words mean different things to women and men, and if so, have we lost something in the process of defining them? Um, when that process was mostly a, a, an endeavour taken on by men. And so that was the first kernel of, of thinking about, well, what would happen if I put a woman, <laughs> through a woman amongst the pigeons, essentially? What story would come out of that? Um, and then when I started to do a little bit of research about the Oxford English Dictionary, this one little story kept popping up all over the place. And it was the story of a lost word. and. One word apparently went missing from the Oxford English Dictionary in real life. Um, It was a word that should have been in the first volume of A and B but wasn't and that word is bondmaid and bondmaid means a slave girl and this story just kept popping up and there was no explanation for it so to this day they don't know how that word ended up being lost from the Oxford English Dictionary. And for a writer, that was just a little bit of gold Um, because no one knows
0: Mm. I can
2: I can speculate and that is what the Dictionary of Lost Words does.
0: It's magic. It's magic how you've done that, that you have made a story, a beautiful fiction story from just that. Yeah. But also there's so much in it. There, There is that, you know, male versus female, but there's also feminine words and masculine words and, I mean, there is so much there, isn't there? And, off, I, you know, I, I mean, I work with words and books mm. and readings, but I really hadn't thought about it until I read your book. Talk mm. to me about that, that the, the, the fact that words, you know, have a, a stronger meaning than their actual meaning.
2: Yes. Um, well, I hadn't thought about it much either. And one of the things that I did to do some research for this book is I spent a lot of time in the secure reading room down at the State Library of South Australia, where they have the most beautiful intact set of original Oxford English Dictionary volumes. Mm. So the the first edition of the Oxford English Dictionary took seventy years to compile, um, and it included in the end twelve very heavy, big volumes, leather-bound volumes of, of words. You know, there are millions, <laughs> millions and millions of words contained within these um, these volumes. And I had the pleasure and the privilege of, of being able to, leaf through them. And what I found was the difference between the Oxford English Dictionary and the dictionaries you and I know like the Macquarie dictionary or Collins dictionary.
0: Can Oxford, I tell you Pierre yeah. Pierre use the Oxford dictionary. I've still got my two volume set.
2: Oh good, good. <laughs> well then you would know that the, the big difference between between the Oxford English Dictionary and others is that the Oxford English Dictionary is actually an historical text. Yeah. So what it does is it it gives you the current definition of a word And often there might be, there could be 20 different variants of of that word, but it then gives you the history of that word, dating back as far as they could possibly tell to the first use of that word. And it shows you how words have changed. It shows you how they've evolved over time. And that's the thing that I found so fascinating because our language in a way is, is just like us. It responds to... Its environment um, and words change. Uh, can I tell you, like, just the story of the word yeah. suffragette?
0: Yes, absolutely.
2: <laughs> so this is an example of um, women's words and men's words, and and the difference between what they mean. So the word suffragette is a word that we're all familiar with, and we all have an understanding of what it means. But it originally was used as a an insult, and it was it was used by newspaper men. On the whole, to um, to basically put women down who were behaving badly. So at the what, time, by being outspoken, not so much just being outspoken, but by being militant. So at the right. time, at the time the dictionary was being developed, the women's suffrage movement was also happening in the UK. So women in the UK uh, didn't get any kind of vote until. Um, 1918 but they didn't get full suffrage until 1928 which is when they were allowed to vote and run for parliament and every woman had the same rights as every man but at the time the dictionary was being developed women didn't have the right to vote Um, and there was a big suffrage movement that had been going for quite many decades actually right through the um, 19th century as well Um, but then all of a sudden in the early 20th century some women started becoming militant. So they started graffitiing, they started um, causing trouble, essentially, in a way that um, they hadn't before. And the newspapers dubbed these women suffragettes. Now, it's the E-T-T-E on the end, the et. That's Mm -hmm. the thing that was the insult, because it it indicates that something is less than the original, it is smaller than the original, it is more insignificant than the original and the original is suffrage or the suffragists. And so it was used as an insult and some of the um, quotations that were gathered to uh, define this word suffragette and it is defined in the first Oxford English Dictionary but I had the pleasure of going to the archives and looking at the original slips um, and the slips are just the slips of paper that have a word and a, and a sentence that helps to define that word. And the original slips were, on the whole, these awful, <laughs> awful kind of sentences pulled out of newspaper clippings about the shrieking sisterhood and, um, you know, husbandless, husbandless women and these this is how suffragettes were defined as Mm -hmm. these sort of crazy, screaming, shrieking, husbandless um, women and it was an insult. Um, But the thing is we don't think of it that way now and part of the reason we don't think of it that way is that the... um,
0: It became a movement. It did. Well, it
2: was, yes, it did. But one of the things that happened is women essentially appropriated the word. And so there was one particular group, the WSPU, which is the Women's Social and Political Union, who were um, headed up by Emmeline Pankhurst. Her group of women were the, were the suffragettes. They were the women who were being militant. And and I have to sort of acknowledge that, in fact, amongst the suffrage movement, a lot of other women's suffrage organisations were not... Um, did not agree with the militancy of um, the WSPU, but what they did is they took this word suffragette and they made it the title of their journal, sure. <laughs> and so they they appropriated this word, um, and and now we have forgotten that it was an insult because women have changed the meaning of that word. They took um, it and they owned it. That's right. That's right. And so that's just one example of how organic words are but also how – how men and women have used words differently over time
0: I was thinking about uh words the other day and in light of you know knowing that I was going to speak to you but something that stood out to me I was reading something or watching something this week and the word den came into it you know like a an office a male office isn't it yeah yeah and it's such a male term isn't it that's right a woman doesn't have a den does she no (laughs) <laughs> no, and it probably comes
2: from the animal kingdom. You know, mm. some animals have dens, um, which are yeah, which are sort of places to hide away and be safe, I suppose. But yes, women don't have dens. We have kitchens and laundries. <laughs> uh, we have an office. You know, we have a
0: home office, but we never ever have a den, do we? No,
2: no, and no. no you know, the other it, there's also this whole series of words that describe women, and there are no equivalents in um, for men. So, for instance. There's no equivalent of misses for um, oh, for yeah. men. Yeah. Um, when men become when men become adults around the time of eighteen, they are no longer master. They become Mister, but a woman remains a Miss <laughs> until she's married. You know, in terms of in terms of the um, way those those.
0: I mean, I use titles have
2: been used. Yes, that's that's right. right. And means has been, um, we've had to create a new word for an adult woman, but it didn't exist for a long time.
0: Oh, I think Um, it's it's relatively new. And, you know, sometimes when I use it, when you use it in forms or applications or whatever, it's, you know, it's just the way it is. But when you use it in like like in introductions or people, I I think men find it a little bit uncomfortable. Yeah. I can have it it still has a negative connotation for some people it's like you know the yeah. suffragettes
2: yes that's right that's right so but it's just fascinating It again that is a word telling us what our culture was like and what our society mm. was like because what it's telling us is that women were not full adults until they were married um and of course that's no longer the case but it, it was the case in this in you know in in our lifetime so mm. um it's, I just, I find that the fascinating thing. About oh, absolutely.
0: Yeah. And you've, you've put all of this together just to create one beautiful novel. Now, I heard that it was really hotly contested at Frankfurt. Tell me about that. And how did you feel about that?
2: Oh, it was um, a bit mind blowing. I mean, people kept saying, oh, you know, all your dreams have come true. But I kept saying, I never dreamt this big <laughs> um, so you know um yeah so you know it went to frankfurt um and i i sort of get the news i get drip fed can we the explain news?
0: To, to listeners what frankfurt yes is?
2: yeah. so the frankfurt book fair is one of the biggest um kind of trade book fairs so it's a place where publishers and booksellers and um agents gather from all around the world to, um, I suppose, seek out new titles. So that's what they're doing. And
0: so, it's buying print, and selling.
2: It is. It's buying and selling books mm-hmm. and um, and the rights to mm-hmm. to sort of publish and sell books in other territories. So books, for instance, we are the territory that um, this book is published in at the moment is Australia and New Zealand, mm-hmm. and a firm press who are my absolutely amazing publishers we love them <laughs> oh yeah. my goodness they really they're a small publisher but they really punch above their weight and i i've been so looked after by them so mm-hmm. i'm i'm incredibly grateful for what they've done
0: they're for doing this really good company over there i mean yeah yeah, yeah. yeah that's that's... ashley christian white i mean yeah. you know and the list goes on
2: yeah, yeah. They, they're really um producing yeah. some amazing books and i think that's partly because They spend a lot of time on editorial. So um, like everything, things are being cut back, but they're not cutting back on the things that matter when it comes to producing books, which makes them so good.
0: You know, and in my experience, and I've been doing, I've been in this business for more time than I'd like to talk about. (laughs) Um, But I do think the the, the absolute, like when often people say to me, what makes a good book versus another book? It's editing.
2: Yes, I, I totally agree. And as a writer, um, I just feel so privileged to be edited. So you know, um, absolutely, there is no doubt about it that the reason this book is, you know, you've enjoyed it so much is is because Ruby Ashby Or, who is my my editor, has let's done give such. Give her a plug. Yeah, <laughs> let's give her a plug because editors don't get much of a plug. No, um, but she has done such a a brilliant job working with me, and I learn so much from from being edited and from, from Ruby in particular. Um, and so every time I write, I write a little bit better because, you know, because of what she's helped me to see <laughs> yeah, in the doubt.
0: writing. Yeah, Back yeah. to Frankfurt,
2: yeah. So I, I, I'm not exactly sure what happens really because I, I wasn't there, but I, I think basically the book gets sent out to various publishers um, in an early form um, and for me it was a first draft that was sent out. and Must then
0: in good shape.
2: Well, hopefully, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, was, I was a bit concerned <laughs> it was the first draft. but um, And and then I guess people, if they're intrigued by, it's like anything, if they're intrigued by the notion, by the concept, then they might read the first page <laughs> and if the first page captures their attention, they might keep reading and I, I just guess a few people kept read reading yeah, and, and, and
0: enjoyed it. And loved it. And absolutely yeah. loved it.
2: And so that means then that the manuscript can be um is sold to publishers overseas. And so yes, it's been picked up by publishers in the UK and the US and Germany and Italy and um and Spain and South Korea <laughs> uh, and Russia. Yeah, so fantastic. all over the place and it's yeah. it's it's thrilling.
0: Yeah, um, it really is.
2: Um because we are all in lockdown. Uh, there is you know there's so many writers who are publishing books at this time Um, and of course our avenues of of promoting those books have have reduced markedly we can't have book launches we can't go on library tours we can't speak at bookshops and so on but I just want everyone to realize that local bookstores are doing so many innovative things to try and get books into people's hands and I know that you know most local bookshops you can get online or you can call them and they'll somehow get the book to you if you're in lockdown. They're
0: They're doing deliveries which is absolutely yeah. fantastic. It's we wonderful. been promoting it non-stop on our Instagram page you know. Yeah
2: yeah and and locally. they're going to suffer like every other business they're going to suffer through this but books are the original social distancing activity I think and um hopefully uh books books will have a renaissance during this time but the other place that are really supporting writers and the and and readers is booktopia so that's an australian new zealand outfit who can you can order the books online they'll get it to you you know within a week or so and Hopefully, even a few days. So, I know they've got plenty of my book and they'll have lots of other books too.
0: Absolutely. Uh, yeah. We've got to be supporting each other. Us at Better Reading, we're all digital. We're going yeah. out and supporting readers, we're supporting writers, and we're promoting and talking about books because, you know, once this all calms down and we're sick of listening to the 24 hour news cycle of what's happening with COVID, we can actually escape and you know and the best way to to read a good book right
2: that's right they're an incredible distraction um and also they they help you um consider the past and the future in a way that i think would help us get through the next the next 12 to 18 months absolutely
0: pip williams thank you so much oh thank you cheryl it's been an absolute pleasure
3: luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
0: If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.